Well, here we are. We're talking about the armor of God and we're talking about it from the perspective of how does it play out in our everyday lives? Um, what is it and why was it so significant? As a matter of fact, so significant that Paul felt it was necessary to be able to communicate this both to the Ephesian church and to the church at large. Now, up until this point, we've talked about sort of the, the uh, overview of the book of Ephesians, and we went very quickly over that a couple of weeks ago. And last week, we talked about what it meant to have the belt of truth buckled around our waists. Well, today we're talking about a very vital piece of that armor, which is the breastplate of righteousness. So, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Ephesians 6, 14. In the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents, and people work really hard to put it there, so don't be ashamed to use it when you're looking up the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 14. And just by way of a reminder, uh, Paul is talking about the idea of a standing firm and, and standing in the face of, of the evil one, essentially, as the evil day approaches is the language that he uses. And so in doing so, in verse 14, he says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and listen, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, uh, Lord, that you would give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you. Lord, that there would be clarity of understanding and, and most importantly, Lord, understanding of what this breastplate of righteousness actually is and, and how it plays out in our, in our lives. And so, Lord God, I pray that we would be encouraged in your word and that we would be an encouragement to each other. In your name I pray. Amen. So, let's talk about this breastplate. In the beginning of the series, we understood and understand that the whole language of the armor of God is based on Roman armor. And it's based on uh, the different elements within their armor that are critical when they enter the battlefield. And one of the key things to bear in mind and to remember is that there was nothing covering the back of the Roman soldier. And part of that was because the Roman soldiers are always to face their enemy. They never gave their back to the enemy. And so in the same way within our Christian walks, we never turn our back to the enemy. We always face him head on dealing with whatever it is that he's throwing our way. And so today we're talking about the breastplate. And the Roman soldier would wear this bronze breastplate on them. And the bronze breastplate was lined with leather. And so on the, on the outer elements of it, it would create that, that hard shell. And on the inner elements would be that, that leather that was woven and really tight. So that any arrows that would come through, and it, uh, it would be less likely for that to injure the soldier. Maybe bruise them, but certainly would not necessarily make a fatal blow. And, and so it would cover from their torso, like uh, their navel to their neck. And so this was a pretty important piece of, of armor. And it would provide protection against their vital organs, uh, especially like the heart and the bowels, you could say, like the intestines. Now this is important because if unprotected, these wounds would often be fatal. And so this is a very important piece of the soldier's armor in combat. And we're going to get back to that because that plays a vital role of understanding when we're talking about the Christian life and, and how we live these things out. And so if we've got this breastplate of righteousness, it's important for us to understand, well, what is the breastplate? And how do we then define righteousness? Um, because it, it's a big word. It's, a, it's probably a word you may have heard before, 
But I want to be sure that we have a proper biblical understanding of what this notion of righteousness is. So, as the Apostle Paul says that the Christian's breastplate is righteousness, and so just what are we talking about? Well, it is the moral and spiritual uprightness, you could say, that is seen in the character of God. And so because it's seen in the character of God, the speaker, the Scriptures tell us that we are to be just like God. So when this is done and, or spoken of in relation to the Christian's walk, it really is spoken of in two ways. You could say that it's spoken of in what you would call imputed righteousness, which is righteousness that is given to us. But along with that, or second to that, it's the idea that there's a believer's responsibility to move into the arena of behaving, acting, thinking righteously. So in that first part, this imputed righteousness, this is the divine righteousness that we receive from Jesus that He gives to us as a gift once we're saved. And, and, and just to be clear about that, right, because this language of this divine righteousness that we get from Jesus is there because we didn't have any righteousness on our own. There's nothing that we were able to bring to the table. By nature, we're sinful rather than righteous. Romans 3.10 says it this way, There is none righteous, no, not even one. Uh, some translations say, uh, no one is good, not even one. Verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so really, if you think about it, left to ourselves, we could never make ourselves acceptable to God. This is an important truth within the Christian walk. It is critical to our understanding of Jesus' movement towards us. So we could never make ourselves acceptable to God. When Romans chapter 5, verse 6 tells us this important fact, that while we were yet still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And so Christ not only shed His blood to remove our sins, His righteousness is granted to us. It's given to us. It's imputed to us as a gift. And, and the impact of that gift is that God no longer views us just simply based on us. He looks at us through the lens of His Son. He sees us through Christ's perfect record. Now, that's a big deal. And you see, because what that means is, is that uh, it's not that I'm not responsible for my history. It's not that um, there's, there's not consequence to what I've done or what I do. But when God looks at me, He sees me through the lens of His Son. In other words, what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient. I don't have to make up for something. Jesus already paid for it. I need to repent of what I've done. I need to move in a different direction, the opposite direction. But I don't earn favor with God. I don't earn this righteousness that I gain from the work of Jesus on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28 to 30 says it this way. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, whom has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so because the Christian has been by an act of God, like an absolute gracious act of God, we've been made righteous 
we're now responsible to that righteousness. So if you say the imputed righteousness is Christ's gift to us, Christ's righteousness given to us, and that the Father looks at us through the lens of the Son, then, then there's a responsibility for us to live out what has already been made true in our lives. In other words, um, we are to behave in righteous ways. We're to pursue righteousness in our lives. And so that is to be seen in our attitudes, in our actions, in our, in our thoughts, in our words, and sort of like everything that we are. And so that does bring us to the believer's responsibility, which is that second part of righteousness. So the first part is imputed righteousness, which is that gift that we get from God where Jesus paid the price for everything. His righteousness has kind of been gifted to us, and God looks at us through the lens of His Son. And then there's kind of our part in, you could say, um, being led by the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, guides us and convicts us of sin, all that kind of stuff, and so helps us move towards uh, holy living, Christian living. And so this is the idea of the believer's responsibility as it relates to behaving righteously. And so the Holy Spirit gives us everything we need uh, to be obedient to Christ. This is an obedience issue. And so we become Christ-like when, as we are practically moving away from our old self and leaning into our new self. Old is gone, new has come. And so we think, we feel, we speak, we act correctly or righteously, just like Jesus did. First John 2, 6. Those who claim to be in Christ must live as Jesus lived. And so there is this principle uh, within Scripture of what it means for us to be obedient to Jesus and follow in His footsteps. Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, in talking about the believer's responsibility towards righteousness, it says, put away as concerning your former way of life, the old man, and in verse 24, and put on the new man who is, sorry, who in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And so there's this command, there is this instruction for us to put away the old self, put on the new self. That's our part. Walking away from the things that don't look like Jesus and move towards the things that do. You know, the, the whole idea of I will become less so that he becomes more, the whole idea of this old man going away, like my old way of thinking, the Ah, oh, guys, like the selfishness and the and the self-righteousness and, and the um, like all those negative things that either wreck relationship or or cause me to move in, in directions that are opposing to who God is and, and, and choosing my sin nature over over moving towards this new creation that God has made me into. These are the things that I'm to actively move away from in order to be more like Jesus. And so it's my responsibility. Romans 6, 11 to 13 says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you count yourself dead to sin. In other words, I'm not gonna be bound by this thing anymore. I don't go in this direction. I move towards Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And you see, again, there's an impetus on our part to be moving in a direction away from sin, that we have a decision to make as it relates to these things. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, listen, offer yourselves to God 
as those who have been brought from death to life. And so it, it's speaking as if there is this tension that we wrestle with. And in that tension, there is the recognition that there's a decision to make, and it's constant. Don't offer your body to the wickedness. Don't move in your old ways. Move towards the new ways. Move towards what, what is godly. As people who um, have been brought from death to life, and, and so the old way, you could say, was death, and this new way is life. Move towards life in Christ. And then it says, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument, listen, of righteousness. And we offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness. So when you take the idea of righteousness, the idea that Christ's righteousness has been granted to us as a gift, God looks at us through the lens of the Son. And then you have the believer's responsibility within righteousness to move in righteous ways. And you couple that together with the language of the breastplate that is supposed to be this protective armor. What is this breastplate of righteousness? How does it look? Well, I'll say it this way. The breastplate um, and righteousness, this whole idea corresponds with, with how things work out in, in spiritual warfare, you could say. You see, if righteousness, in terms of the believer's responsibility, is about right living, it's about right actions, it's about right thoughts and attitudes, it's about becoming more and more godly, then it stands to reason that the way that the evil one attacks us is, is going to be very planned and very specific. So for example, if he's going to conquer us, then he's going to need to control our hearts. Breastplate can protect the hearts, right? And so if he's going to try and control us, he's going to try and control our hearts. He's going to try and resurrect our old self and cause us to consider leaning more into that old person that we are no longer instead of the new person that we've been created. And he's going to tempt us to think and feel and speak and act in ways that lack righteousness. And so then we become unforgiving, uh, very judgmental. Uh, we lack grace. We lack love. Uh, maybe we, we move towards falsehood and, and become liars or selfish or any of these things that are not what we're called into. And so righteousness, both imputed and, and the believer's responsibility, can guard or protect our hearts from the evil one's attacks. And it's simple that way if you think about it. If you are tempted towards falsehood, right? If you're tempted to lie, well, you know that that's coming from the evil one. You know that's the old person, not the new person. So you're tempted to lie. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Why? Well, because you're pursuing righteous living. And you're living under the truth that, that Christ's righteousness is actually enough to cover you, right? So even if he reminds you of who you used to be and trying to tell you, like, you're, you're horrible or you're, you're ungodly, you would say, yeah, you know what? On my own, I am. But Christ's righteousness covers me. And so I'm going to be secure in that. And then I'm going to act upon that in order to move in that realm. So the reason I mention all this is that just as the breastplate of the ancient Roman soldier would protect his heart and his bowels. The breastplate of righteousness that Paul mentions here is designed to do the exact same thing for the child of God. In two areas of our lives where Satan most frequently attacks has a tendency to be our minds and our hearts, or our, our feelings, our emotions. And both of these things are like the way we think about things, our motivations, that sort of thing, our feelings, 
uh, a lot of times scripture speaks of that as coming from the heart and, and the bowels. Now, I, and the bowels not from that gross perspective, but from the idea that it comes from the innermost parts of our beings that, um, that if not functioning properly, uh, damage the entire person. And so Satan's going to fill our mind with all kinds of false doctrines and, and ma manipulate our emotions. And you can say that he would use the state of the world around us, for example, using that to tempt us to think wrong thoughts and feel manipulated emotions. That he'll use confusion to warp our thinking and feelings to cause us to love the wrong things and uh, even cause us to follow the wrong priorities and to have the wrong goals in life, to dedicate ourselves to the wrong loyalties and to overcommit ourselves to wrong things. It's brilliant. As a matter of fact, not always even just wrong things. Like I truly believe that one of the strategies of the evil one is that he wants to lead us towards good things in order to be able to lead us to false things. I can't get past the fact that the devil never lied to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness. He used the scripture in order to be able to try and manipulate Jesus towards something wrong. He used something good to try and move him to something wrong. And I wonder, you know, in the world around us, how often does the evil one try to use something that we perceive to be good to lead us towards something wrong? Like, if he's leading you towards a particular opinion or thought process or anything that causes you to despise your brother or sister in the faith, you need to know that, that that's just wrong. That there should be no despising for us in the faith. That, 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 that there's this immense call to unity within the scriptures. And so anything that would detract from that goal and, and that pursuit of unity within the body of believers needs to be recognized as an attack from the evil one because that's the exact thing he's attempting to do is to create disunity. He wants to stop us from living holy, pure lives, and so he'll lure us towards envy and hatred and greed and jealousy and immorality and every other human vice you could think of. And he wants us to make light of our sins. He doesn't want us to confess our sins and to deal with it God's way. He wants us to say things like, well, yeah, but everybody sins. You know, everybody does it. Okay? That's true. Everybody sins. That's true. But there's this call to stop it. There's this call to repent of it, to move in the opposite direction of it. And so not to, not to minimize it, but to recognize the egregious nature of what sin actually is, because it is a stumbling block within our relationship with the Father. And so we deal with it God's way. He wants us, the evil one wants us to become desensitized to it, right? Like we're just so used to doing it that it just becomes a part of our being instead of something that we reject and move away from. He wants us to rationalize our sin and not seek the Lord in forgiveness. And so we rationalize our sin by saying things like, well, if this person doesn't come and ask for forgiveness, then I'm not going to forgive them. Hang on a second. That's not how this works. We don't rationalize unforgiveness. We don't rationalize bitterness or we don't rationalize um, dissension or we don't rationalize lust. We don't don't rationalize sin. We move towards righteousness, and in doing so, it protects our hearts 
from that poison of sin that could so easily entangle us and overwhelm us. And so to accomplish these and other goals, Satan's attacks, they come at us in the way we think and in the way we feel. If he can cause us to think about things in the wrong way, even if it's like 90% true, 10% false, if he can cause us to do that, we're still off the mark. If he can cause us to follow feelings that are not pleasing to the Lord, well, he can defeat us and drag us away from the Lord. And this is where I get so frustrated about the whole language of compassion, the the deep desire to, to want good for others at the expense of truth. And man, I sit here and I think, okay, so we talk about how we feel about things, how we feel about people, and we want compassion towards them. But what informs the compassion? Like, what, what is the metric that determines how we're to apply compassion in a person's life? And so if the evil one is able to get us to focus simply on feelings and allow the feelings to govern truth, then he's got it. He's got us. Because he's always going to lead us away from absolute truth. But if we can allow the absolute truth, to inform our compassion, to help govern and instruct our compassion. I mean, now we got something. But understand that he doesn't want absolute truth attached to compassion. He just wants us to act compassionately. And so that's where the deformity, you could say, of our hearts, our sinful nature, well, it's easy to manipulate. And so this righteousness piece and how we think, how we act, how we feel, all of it comes through that rubric of the Bible. It is instructed by the scriptures. And so because people are, are sinful, we know that they need a Savior. Great, I want to introduce them to Jesus. Why? So that he can help them deal with their sin and put their sin to death. I understand that one of the things that we are to do as believers is take care of their widows and the orphans and and there's a way to do that biblically. All of these things. There's a biblical mandate to do things well. Justice issues. You know, in Isaiah, we read that we're not supposed to uh, lean in towards people who are the ones who are accusing and pointing fingers, but we are to act justly. And we are to make sure that, that those who are uh, being treated unjustly are taken care of and this and that. And so we allow the scripture to define justly. We led the scripture to define who we interact with as it relates to dealing with justice issues, all those kinds of things. Like, yes, we do justice, but we do justice biblically and we move in towards righteousness in that sense. And the evil one tries to defeat us and drag us away from the Lord by causing us not to lean into, again, that belt of truth, not to lean into righteous thinking and feeling. And he can get us out of the fight by challenging how we think and feel. And so the breastplate of righteousness offers protection against these attacks of the devil. And with this piece of armor, sorry, when this piece of armor is in place, Satan will be unable to defeat us in those realms. We're protected. And we're still facing it. We're protected. Our hearts are you could say like treasure chests. And what comes out of that heart, what comes out of the heart, you could say, 
is, is whatever that primary influence on the heart is. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And out of the heart flows our actions and, and, and the, the things in life that, that we lean into. The heart's either pure or corrupt, and somewhere in the middle there too, I suppose. And so the whole person's course of life is often governed by these things, how we think and how we feel. Their feelings and intense attitudes, words and actions. And so this being true, the proverb begins with saying, watch over your heart. Let's guard it. Guard the entirety of your heart with, with intention and, and, and recognizing that, that when you're guarding it, you don't let impure things in. Don't be careless to allow anything to enter your heart that you don't want to proceed from your heart by way of our attitudes, our words, and our actions. Be an alert soldier in this army. Recognize that you are a soldier in the army. And so you keep diligent watch. Don't throw anything, un don't allow anything unauthorized into our heart's gates. So what are the heart's gates? Well, there are our eyes, there are our ears, there are our thoughts. You know, anything that we allow our minds to feed on because these things Ultimately, what we're talking about is what are the things that become primary influences in your life? What are the things that you allow to be authority in, in your life? And if we want spiritually righteous thoughts, intense attitudes, words and actions and feelings to dominate our lives, well, then we need to feed on things and dwell on things that are going to move us into righteousness. I mean, I can't expect to have my heart and my mind, my feelings and my thinking focused on righteous things and influenced by righteous things if I never dwell on righteous things, if I'm never instructed in righteousness. So here's a checklist. I just want to close our time here because this is a short one, but it's an important one. Closing our time here with, with a bit of a checklist to, to kind of evaluate you know, where are our hearts at? Where are our minds at? And sort of examining how to test those things and what we should measure them against so that we feed our minds or so we could test everything that we propose to feed our minds and our hearts with so that we know that whatever we're feeding it with, whatever we're allowing to have that influence in our lives, our things are going to be able to help us continue to stand as we're told to stand so that that breastplate that we have is, is secured so that it is not weakened with impure things? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It's a passage of Scripture that a lot of people appreciate. Uh, some people use it as a life verse, and I think it's fantastic for that as well. But Philippians 4, verse 8 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, I love how it starts there. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So the things that we allow to influence us, what we hear, what we read, what we watch, what we think, should fit these qualities. Or we're going to have to discard those things. And so I would say this. Let's replace 
harmful with wholesome. Replace harmful with wholesome. Above all, read God's Word and pray. Ask Him to help you focus your mind on what is good and what is pure and to lead you in that direction so that you can continue to stand firm and be protected by the evil one's arrows. And we got to be diligent to fill our heart with righteousness so that there will be no room for unrighteousness. And by allowing righteousness to dominate our hearts, Satan cannot penetrate and wound or destroy. See, the breastplate of righteousness is us moving towards becoming more and more like Jesus. His righteousness has been given to us. And our responsibility within that is to become more and more like Him, moving away from the old into the new, replacing old heart with new heart, old thinking with new thinking, and becoming more and more like the one who rescued us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who would evaluate well, that we would find sources of information and influence that come from you and honor you rather than the things that don't. And Lord God, that we would become more tenacious about our desire to become more like you. Would you help us to that end? In your holy and precious name I pray, Lord. Amen.